Online harassment is commonplace, with roughly 4 in 10 Americans having personally experienced online harassment, the same share that we saw in 2017. And while online harassment wasn't a growing issue, it was an intensifying one. As of 2020, people are more likely to say they've encountered multiple forms of harassment online, with more severe encounters such as stalking and physical threats becoming much more common. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. The concept of harassment and bullying is not a new one. However, once the internet came into play, it completely changed the dynamic. In today's episode, I am chatting with Emily Vogels of Pew Research Center to talk about the studies that they have completed on cyberbullying, harassment, and online behaviors when it comes to interconnectivity and conflict online. Emily Vogels is a research associate working on internet and technology research at Pew Research Center. Much of her recent work has been focused on teens' digital lives, the tone and tenor of online discourse, and the digital divide. Join us as we talk about the studies that have been produced around teen usage of digital media and that of adults as well. Let's get into it. I would love to learn a little bit more about your background and how you even got to becoming a research associate. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm a research associate on the internet and technology team uh, at the Pew Research Center. I have a PhD in experimental psychology, and that means that I specialized in research and statistics, but the research I was doing was primarily focused in social media use, interpersonal relationships, sexuality in the digital age, and understanding how digital tools and the online environment were influencing the connections between people. What was that initial draw for you to get into that line of work? I found the internet a really fascinating place. I don't think that I was initially drawn to the internet in the research capacity so much as I was drawn to understanding the connections between people and then just watching how the internet became such a large component of people's lives and their connections with other people really made me interested in that digital component of the relationships between people piece that I was initially attracted to. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what year was this? That I first got into? Yeah. That you were like, what was this like year of, of, I'm trying to put the pieces together of the year of the internet. Like what was happening in the internet at this time that you were looking at it and saying, oh, that's kind of cool. I think it kind of came about during my undergraduate years, just because I grew up in a household that was lower income. We didn't have good internet connection. And so when I started college, I needed a good internet connection. And so it was just like having this like sudden immersion into what was already a pretty well-established online environment. And so I just started like noticing how the internet was changing people's connections in a little bit different way of like having slowly grown up with it. It was more like not being connected to suddenly being connected and seeing how big of a role that was playing that kind of like <laughs> connected the dots for me. This is interesting, but I didn't really start thinking about this in a research capacity until I reached my PhD program, which was back in like 
2015. Okay, that that's a fun time in the internet culture. I always like to I always like to think about the the way in which the technology has just changed and emerged and how you have different almost eras of internet usage and how people were using it. So, especially coming in not having that same, you know, level of exposure to the internet, you were able to come in and have more of that keen eye and taking a look at how it all worked together and interacted. So I love that background. I would love to dive into what we really want to talk about today. So you have performed studies on online harassment and understanding teen usage of internet uh, in the digital age, and you particularly had worked on the study on online harassment in 2021, I would love to get an overview for the audience of that study and really what prompted you to investigate that issue. So Pew Research Center has studied online harassment and the tone of people's online encounters for years. And this report was really building off this long body of work by updating our numbers regarding online harassment and exploring Americans' attitudes around the actions they think should be taken to address this important issue. So when we were launching the survey, it had been about three years since we had last studied online harassment directly. And in that time, the Me Too movement had happened. We saw tech clash continuing to grow and partisan antipathy had reached an all-time high. And we had seen discussions of online harassment cropping up in other work that wasn't directly on this topic, such as we would do research on online dating or we would do work on views of social media and people would start bringing up online harassment in how they were thinking about these other topics. And so it felt like it was the right time to revive our online harassment work and really dive into people's experiences with harassment, especially in that time period, the survey was fielded before the 2020 election. We wanted to really understand how politically motivated harassment might be occurring in the lead up to that election. So when was the research gathered in that time frame? So the survey was fielded in September 2020. Oh, so we're in the height of political political season. But it was before the election actually occurred itself, even though the report did come out in 2021. Yes. So we collected the survey data in September 2020, and then we used the latter part of that year to analyze and organize the data and build out the report. Okay. Fabulous. So what was the methodology behind your research? We surveyed uh, a little over 10,000 U.S. adults in September 2020, and everyone who took part of this study was a member of the Center's American Trends Panel, or the ATP as we like to call it for short, which is an online survey panel that recruits through national random sampling of residential addresses, which basically means that nearly all U.S. adults have a chance at being selected to be part of this research. And once we had collected our data, we looked at how people had responded in comparison to what we had found on some of the questions that we asked in previous years. So we had previously asked some of these questions in 2017 and in 2014. So we wanted to look at how things had changed during that time. What were some of the most significant findings from your study? Online harassment is commonplace, with roughly 4 in 10 Americans having personally experienced online harassment. 
the same share that we saw in 2017. And while online harassment wasn't a growing issue, it was an intensifying one. As of 2020, people are more likely to say they've encountered multiple forms of harassment online, with more severe encounters such as stalking and physical threats becoming much more common. So while it didn't change how many people had been reporting on any type of harassment, the number of harassment per person was heightened in that time frame? So... We had six different behaviors that we asked people about, and they ranged from less severe behaviors like name calling and like people trying to embarrass them. But then we have some more severe behaviors such as like physical threats, sexual harassment, stalking, persistent harassment of them. And what we saw is that the individual shares who were saying, I've been physically threatened were on the rise. But that overall number of people who were saying they've ever been harassed had not changed. So this was suggesting that since 2017, it wasn't that more people were being harassed. It was that the people who were being harassed were experiencing more and intensifying types of harassment in that time. So being in this really heightened political season in September of 2020, when they are surveyed, what was the impact or, you know, not the impact, but what was the perceived harassment, if any, around politics? Was that pretty significant at that time, more so than 2017? So political views were actually one of the major reasons people saw uh, as the reason they were targeted for online harassment. So what we see is that a fifth of all U.S. adults said that they had been harassed for their political views. Another way of looking at that is among the people who have been harassed online, half of them say that they were targeted for harassment because of their political stance. Did that differ based on bipartisanship? When we look across uh, political parties, the differences were not large. 54% of Republicans say that they were harassed for their political views, and 47% of Democrats said that they were harassed for their political views of those who had experienced harassment online. Interesting. How does online harassment vary across demographics beyond political, but gender, age, race, you know, what are some of those other areas that stood out in your studies as far as difference in online harassments? The type of online harassment people encounter vary by age and gender, race and ethnicity. For example, while men are slightly more likely than women to have ever encountered harassment online, there are noticeable differences in the types of harassment men and women encounter online. Men are more likely than women to have been called an offensive name or have been physically threatened. Women, on the other hand, are about three times as likely as men to have faced sexual harassment online, and younger women are at an even higher risk of encountering sexual harassment online. So with that age difference, because assuming they look at online culture and how different demographics are using these platforms. You have your younger audience that is more active than your older audience. You mentioned age is different, especially when it comes to younger women being recipients of sexual harassment. 
what are some of those other differences and, and how significant are those differences between older demographics and younger demographics when it comes to online harassment? Across all six of the behaviors that we asked about, younger adults are more likely to have been the target of these behaviors as well as to have experienced any type of harassment online. So these differences are persistent and consistent across that. And how young are you uh, looking at with these audiences? So in this particular study, we were looking at 18 and older. So our youngest age group that we kind of group together is 18 to 29-year-olds. And we do see that they are notably more likely to experience each of these harassing behaviors. Did your research uncover anything that was unexpected or anything that was abnormal based on your previous research in 2017, where it felt more of a phenomenon or something maybe had shifted in how people are reporting? Or did everything seem like it was pretty much on the same trajectory as a whole? I think one of the most notable findings is not necessarily a finding that differed across the years, but often in talking to people, they find it to be perhaps counter to what they expected, is that men are more likely than women to have encountered harassment online. And oftentimes the narrative we hear is oftentimes around the harassment that women experience online. But as I said, men and women experience different types of harassment, and men are more likely to have encountered any form of harassment online. And this is something we've consistently found over the years, but I think is one of those findings that often runs a bit counter to what people think the data is going to say. So I think it's an interesting point to just kind of highlight there. That is interesting. When you're talking about these different forums or avenues that you are reporting on. Social media is just one of them. What are the other digital mediums that are a part of this report? So we explored several different places that people could have experienced harassment online. Social media is the most common. 75% of people who have been harassed say that their most recent experience occurred on social media. The next most common that we see is about a quarter of folks saying that they experienced harassment on a online forum or discussion site. And about a quarter also say that they were harassed most recently by text or messaging app. About 16% say that they encountered harassment while gaming online. And about one in 10 of those folks who have been targeted for online harassment say that they experienced harassment most recently in their personal email account or on an online dating site or app. One of the things that I think really stands out is that this is not something that is just located on one platform when people are experiencing harassment. 41% of people say the last time they were harassed online, it occurred across multiple of these locations. Interesting. Does your research glean any insight into whether or not this harassment comes from one source or multiple sources, or is that not a part of the study? So in the 2020 study, we did not dive into who the harassers were and the number of people that may have been involved. We have done some of that work in 2017, and it's something that I really hope we can 
come back to again in further research because that is such a important and you know complex part of the puzzle that is online harassment. Yeah, because I'll, I'll give my you know perception and my bias is that especially with men being the, the higher demographic that's going to encounter more harassment than women, I would look at gaming and assume that might be an area where they may get more harassment or forums. But I'd be curious to see what does the research show? Is Are there any sources or mediums where men are receiving more harassment than women? Or is that across the board, including social media? So when we look at the different locations uh, that harassment may have occurred, women who have been harassed are more likely than their male counterparts to say that their most recent experience was on social media. However, the majority of both men and women say that the most recent experience was on social media. So women are more likely, but again, majority of both are saying that. When it comes to online gaming, for example, as you mentioned, men are uh, more likely than women to have encountered harassment there. So men who have been harassed about a fifth say that their most recent experience was well online gaming compared to about one in 10 women. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So many of these platforms have implemented policies that are aimed to combat online harassment. Based on your findings, have efforts had any success on shifting the trajectory of these trends? And I know you can't say these efforts have definitely or have not, but what does the data show? Have any of these trends indicated that there may be an adjustment or a reduction in the level of harassment that's being reported? So American adults are highly critical of the job that social media companies are doing to address online harassment, with 79% saying these companies are doing an only fair to a poor job at addressing it. And when it comes to how to make these companies more accountable, most Americans believe that personal lawsuits against these companies are not the right course of action. Only about a third of people who have been bullied or harassed online think that people who have experienced this should be able to sue uh, the platforms where harassment occurs. Instead, many Americans feel that other tactics would be effective solutions to combat harassment on social media. For example, about half of Americans think that permanent bans for users who harass others or requiring users to disclose their real identity to use websites would be in a very effective solution. Okay. So it seems like there are some ideas floating around when it comes to what these social media companies can do in order to put a little bit of, you know, more parameters around how bullying and harassment is handled. How does cyberbullying affect teenagers when it compares to adults? Are there any unique challenges that teens face when it comes to online harassment? So as you are kind of alluding to here, we conducted a survey of U.S. teens in the spring of 2020, and we found that nearly half of U.S. teens ages 13 to 17 uh, report having ever experienced at least one of the six cyberbullying behaviors we asked about. And we see that older teen girls in particular stand out on numerous measures for their experience with harassment online. 
They're especially likely to report having been targeted for online abuse overall and to say that they've been the target of online abuse because of their appearance. Older teen girls are also more likely than younger teen girls or teen boys of any age to have faced false spreading of rumors or constant monitoring by someone other than a parent. In addition, we see that a quarter of 15 to 17-year-old girls report having been sent sexually explicit messages that they didn't ask for, compared to about 1 in 10 of younger teens who have been cyber-flashed. When that data goes to adults and you compare that side-by-side with the studies that you've done on adult harassment, how, how does that stack up as far as the comparison? There are some challenges in doing direct comparisons between these work and First and foremost is that some of the behaviors that we ask about of teens are different than the behaviors that we ask of adults. So while we ask about being threatened or being called uh, an offensive name of both groups, we ask, you know, more specific questions of these teens about like having been sent explicit messages that they didn't ask for, having messages that they sent explicit messages they sent shared with other people. Whereas among adults, we ask more broadly about sexual harassment, but we don't give those specific examples. So it's hard to make direct comparisons because the behaviors that we ask about of these groups are slightly different. And so it's it's a challenging topic to navigate and compare using the data that we have. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So With that, based on your findings, are there any specific social media features or practices that might contribute to a higher rate of cyberbullying among teenagers? Any functionalities when it comes to these apps based on the research that you have done that might enable some of these results in your findings? Well, we didn't ask about specific features of the platforms that they're on that lead to abuse, potentially, we did ask teens why they thought they might have been targeted for harassment online. And we see that 15% of all teens think that they've been cyberbullied because of their appearance, their physical appearance, followed by about one in 10 teens who say that they've been targeted because of their gender or because of their race or ethnicity. Teens less commonly report being harassed because of their sexual orientation or their political views, just 5% each, which is interesting to think about how big political views really are for being targeted for harassment among adults, where that is much less the case for teens. That's really interesting to think about, especially from the mind of a young teen who's going through that experience of, you know, growing into themselves and understanding their own unique identity in a very intense high school environment, middle school environment, to have that be such a top contender, whereas being LGBTQ is much more among adults, it's not necessarily the same in high school and middle school. I'm curious to know how long has that study been going on historically? Like when was the first time that you had started this research at Pew Research in this category? Was 2017 the first year or did it start even earlier than that? For adults, we have data that we can trend to back to 2014. Okay. And with teens, is it just the 2020? 
we've done some work previously on teens and cyberbullying, but due to some of the differences in how the research was conducted, we can't make direct comparisons. So mm. we've been looking at these topics. It's just sometimes you can't compare directly due to... Yeah. Previously, a lot of surveys were done by phone and then doing them online, we see some like shifts and changes of how people respond. And so while that makes sense within the context of that survey, trying to compare directly can be really challenging. Yeah, that makes Um, complete sense. I always want to know, is it a generational difference or is it a time of your life difference? And it's the same idea about how generations grow up and then they look at the next generation. They're like, oh, they're young and lazy or whatever, whatever, whatever. And all the perspectives about millennials and baby boomers and whatnot. And so it's always a fascinating question to me on whether or not the experience that a certain generation has is more so an indicator of their generation themselves or just their age. This is a really complex problem. And at the center, we've been putting a lot of thought into this dynamic. So is it someone's age? Is it the point in time, like a history effect of like, this is just a historical moment where this is, you know, shifting things in certain ways, or is it a cohort or a generation, as you might think of it, it is something about that particular grouping of people. And it's a very challenging thing. And to try to understand if something is generational differences or just age differences It requires a lot of data over a long, long period of time to really start being able to parse this out because otherwise we can't really say yet of, is this a generational difference? Is this an age difference? Because we don't necessarily have data on, you know, we have our our age group of 65 plus. We don't have data from when they were 13 to 17 to see how they thought about these things and how they experienced these things. So to try to say, oh, this is a generational difference can't really be done until we have enough data over a sustained period of time to really start understanding what is generation, what is time point, what is cohort. Yeah, because I'm going to be watching keenly to see how the as you know, this 13 to 17 year old group becomes adults and they're in that adult cohort with that study, how their perceptions of why they are being targeted for online harassment changes, especially thinking about, you know, what's, what was that difference between the adult generation being the target based on their sexuality versus what teens believe based on sexuality? We see that 7% of all U.S. adults say that they feel they've been targeted for harassment online due to their sexual orientation. When we look at teens, that is 5%. That's one that I would want to see over time. Is that a generational difference versus, you know, adult generations? So that'll be one to to watch as you all continue to do your research over the next many, many decades to come. Something that if you're interested in that sexual orientation piece, It's worth thinking about the fact, too, that sexual orientation is a broad label of, like, we ask this of everyone, but this could be a very different experience for those 
who are lesbian, gay, bisexual compared to someone who is straight. And we did look at that in adults. And we found that half of uh, lesbian, gay, or bisexual adults who had previously experienced harassment online say that they were targeted because of their sexual orientation. Mm, so it is, it is significant. It's a significant difference between people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, and those who are straight. Only 12% of straight folks in our sample say they feel they were targeted uh, for harassment because of their sexual orientation. With that differentiator, looking at teens, do you have that same call out and differentiation? Sadly, because our teen sample is smaller, it is much more difficult to do that granularity of separating the findings out. We do hope in the future to have like a larger sample of teens that is representative that we can really start separating folks out and parsing that. But in our sample, we had over a thousand, but that's a tenth of the sample that we had for adults. And so it's just much more challenging to feel confident in giving point estimates on those. Sure. That makes complete sense. Aside from those areas, you know, that are different between the teenage audience and the adult audience, what are some commonalities? What are some areas of research that appeared that are similar across the two demographics or or groups? So we see that, well, not directly comparable, we do see that offensive name calling is one of the most common behaviors that both adults and teens report encountering online. And it is one of those less severe behaviors. In general, we see those less severe types of harassment are more commonly reported than the more severe forms. And then what about platform usage when it comes to social media specifically? Are there any indicators of platforms that may be more susceptible to online harassment when it comes to that large bucket in social media? So our prior work in other areas tell us about how different social media sites serve different purposes in people's lives. People use it for certain purposes and in different ways and have very different experiences depending on the platform that they're using. So while we did not ask people specifically in this study about the different platforms and, you know, was their experience on this platform different than that platform, our other work does suggest that there are wide differences in how people engage with platforms, the types of experiences that they seek out and receive on these platforms. And we hear that from both adults and teens. We've done focus groups where Teens talk about how on this platform, it's where you go to interact with your friends and you don't really interact with anyone else. This other platform, you're going to go there, you're going to just absorb content, take it in, but you're not really interacting with people. And there's variation in between. And so the experiences of harassment on these different platforms would be really interesting to explore because we do know that differences across platforms in other experiences are present. And then it kind of gets back into the idea around having criminal charges or, you know, what, whatever the recourse would be 
to eliminate harassment on these channels, were there any differentiators between what teens thought should happen versus what adults thought should happen? So in terms of combating harassment online, we see that teens favor the idea of banning users similar to adults. We also see that about half of teens think that criminal charges for people who harass or bully others on social media would help a lot to combat uh, harassment and bullying. Some of the other items that we asked about here for teens, we see that about four in 10 teens think that if social media companies like sought out and deleted posts that were bullying and harassing or requiring users to disclose their real identities to use these platforms would be helpful. And a question that we didn't ask of adults because it does not really apply to them is that about 30% of teens think that school districts monitoring the students' social media activity for bullying and harassment would help a lot to reduce the harassment and bullying that they see on social media. And that alludes to another interesting part of the study that you did with the teens, which was how teens feel about how they're doing when it comes to mitigating online harassment on these channels. And because they are under 18, there are other avenues and other factors that can help mitigate this, not just the elected officials and social media sites themselves, but also teachers and parents. What is the overwhelming perception and major difference about where they feel that this cohort is doing a great job when it comes to monitoring and and managing kids on social media versus where they think people are doing a poor job? In general, teens are bit skeptical about how groups are doing. Um, Large majorities think that elected officials and social media sites are doing only fair to a poor job. For example, 81% say elected officials are doing only fair to a poor job at addressing online harassment and bullying. We see that about 6 in 10 say that teachers and law enforcement are doing a only fair to poor job. But when it comes to parents, this is where we really see teens saying, this is a group that's doing something that's helpful. We see two thirds of teens say that their parents are doing an excellent or good job at addressing online harassment and online bullying. So while we don't know what exactly their parents are doing, I think it's reassuring probably for parents to hear that their kids generally think that What they're doing is working and helping and is a good thing. And so they're not very optimistic about a lot of other groups, but they do think parents are really stepping up and helping in this. Good job, parents. Way to go. Pat on the back for y'all. There was another interesting stat that came out of that study in the same vein where I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was talking about from the perception of the teen 
and them saying what the perception of their parent was, whether what they do on social media is better, worse, or about the same as what their parents think of. Do you have that stat? Yes. Because uh, that one is, that that also is super interesting to me on how teens are feeling about these parents that are doing a, a pretty dang good job, but does their social media activity of the teen reflect better, worse, or about the same of the perception of the parent? When it comes to social media more broadly and what teens um, think of their parents' perceptions, we see that about a third of teens think that their parents have a view that is about right of what it's like to be a teen on social media. We see, however, that 39% of teens, so about 4 in 10, are saying that it is better than what parents think. And about 3 in 10 say it's worse than parents think. So while most teens think that parents don't have a view that that is exactly accurate, only about a third saying that, we do see that teens in general say it's better than parents think on social media. Er... 39% say that it is better than parents think. Another Uh, nod to the parents that y'all are doing a good job. The last little nugget that I think rounds this out pretty nicely is the stat on most teens say social media has had a negative effect on people their age more so than on them personally. So that perception of their peers and how social media has impacted them versus on themselves. What does that stat say? Uh, So the survey shows that teens have a somewhat split sense of the impact of social media has had on teens. As a group, they're more downbeat about social media's effects on teens in general than they are about its impact in their own lives. While just 9% of teens think that social media has had a mostly negative effect on them personally, that share rises to 32% when they're asked the same question, but framed as about people their age. That is a pretty significant difference in perception of self versus perception of others. It really highlights how teens are aware of the conversations and the narrative around how things uh, are framed up about teens' experiences online. And they acknowledge, while this may not be my experience, I do think this is the experience of some other teens. And I think that our research on teens more broadly uh, highlights how nuanced teens' experiences are. And there is good and bad but we see more of the good response than some of these negative experiences that we often associate with uh, teen social media use. And that, that stat itself really does pose the question of, is it a negative lens that they're looking at their peers through and saying, well, I've heard that it's difficult or I feel like it's more difficult for them, but it's not difficult for me. Is that more rose-colored glasses towards their own experience where they don't have the same wherewithal looking inwards? Or is that just a tainted vision on the cohort themselves as far as what they may or may not be experiencing when in reality, based on their own self-reported data, it really actually is not bad. And they do have all this positivity that comes out of social media itself. 
I won't ask for your opinion on that, but I will pose that to the audience to consider. (laughs) Something really interesting is that we did focus groups alongside our survey research with teens. And we did ask teens about their experiences on these platforms. And one of the really interesting things that we heard teens talk about is really thinking about who they're interacting with online, where they're going. Some teens talked about like specifically seeking out places that they, you know, knew who they were interacting with. These are the people they wanted to interact with because they knew that there could be negative experiences lurking in certain areas, but they were trying to curate what they were doing to have a positive experience, to have connection with their friends, to find something funny and entertaining. And it was also interesting to hear teens work through what they might observe others experiencing online and what they thought the best course of action to take was if they were seeing, you know, someone being harassed or if they saw someone they knew harassing someone else and trying to navigate that. So I heard teens in focus groups putting a lot of thought into these elements and really thinking it through. So it's an interesting piece of the puzzle as well. What were some of the things that teens were saying when it came to these focus groups in that regard? Something that a lot of teens were saying is that while their experiences were largely positive, they acknowledged and had seen other folks who had had negative experiences and had seen some of that, you know, negative discourse. And I think one of the really like interesting comments that one of the teen boys made is that if he saw someone doing something like that online, He wasn't necessarily going to insert himself online, but offline, in person, he might seek someone out and be like, hey, that wasn't cool and try to like address it with people. And we heard other teens talking about it too, of like, is this a conversation that you have online? Is this a conversation you have in person? And really trying to think through these things. And it's really fascinating to hear these teens work through the complex interconnectedness that they have in their lives where school life and home life kind of start blending together because you do have this constant, persistent access to the internet and that allows people to engage with others at any point in time and trying to figure out what is the right space and what are the right conversations to be having. So there's an awareness on forum and where to have these conversations and how to conflict manage these different interactions and and correct behavior, especially within their own cohorts. Teens are definitely thinking through those elements and trying to make choices that they think will lead to, you know, a better experience for them and their friends. I love that. Any similar studies or similar pulse checks on that of adults? We recently did some research with like some focus groups with adults asking about the different types of platforms they use and the different experiences that they had across these platforms. And we did hear that adults were putting a lot of thought into what they say online and where they say things online, because they felt that in certain platforms, they had created or curated an audience that would be more accepting of them acting, saying things in certain spaces. Other spaces, they felt like they were scared to say what they thought because they felt it's more public. People might try to, you know, come after me, attack me if I say something 
and they didn't like what I had to say. And so we also see adults thinking through where they're going online, what they're saying, what are the places that they can say it, who is in the audience for any of their posts on different platforms or engaging in comments on different platforms or engaging with other people's posts on different platforms. Like where do they feel they can speak up? Where do they feel they should speak up? Where do they feel they should hold back? So this is something we're seeing in teens and adults, and it's a really fascinating navigation of this online landscape. Hey, we love some self-awareness. That's uh, good for everybody and good for, you know, hopefully mitigating some of this trend in the future. Are there any plans for follow-up studies for us to look out for when it comes to online harassment and uh, between teens and both adults? So... This is a really important issue, and we want to keep doing research on people's experiences and the tone of discourse on social media and online more generally, and we are continuing conversations and idea generations about where we want to explore this next and really thinking about when is the time to re-up our research on the basic numbers and where can we explore further and really start looking into new elements of all of this, you know, complex topic. I love it. Well, we're going to be keeping a pulse check on y'all's research to to see where we're trending and how we're moving and grooving as a society because this is fascinating stuff. And especially when it comes to online harassment and making it a better, happier, safer place for not just the teens tomorrow, but the adults today. I think that that's just fabulous work. So thank you for everything that you and your team do over at Pew Research Center. And Emily, I'm so glad that you were able to join me today on this episode. Can you do our audience a huge favor and let them know where to learn more about your work and the studies that we have chatted about today? Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. Anyone who wants to learn more about this research, you can check out all of our work at pewresearch.org. We have all of the current research and all of our backlog of prior work. So please come check us out. We got lots of interesting stuff on topics beyond just uh, online harassment. Yeah, don't worry. Y'all can just uh, hang out for a decade and sift through all of the data. It is absolutely fascinating. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.